I know that time of worship was encouraging to your heart today, and I'm excited to get into studying scripture with you today because I believe some of these reminders are going to be refreshing. Some of them are going to be challenging to you today, but I want you to know my heart and what we get in today, we've got to speak into some of the issues that are happening in our world. We need to know what scripture says about them, and this isn't political, but this is personal to our heart of what God's word speaks to his children and how we're supposed to see the world and how we're supposed to take action in the world. And I'm excited to get into this and I just want to say I know some of you guys will wish that I had said more about some of these issues and some of you guys will wish that I had said less But I am not trying to speak into the political sphere of the world. I'm not trying to speak to the cultural world. I'm trying to speak to the believers in Christ. To those who follow the teachings of Scripture. And I want to remind you about these truths that are supposed to guide our perspective of the world. And one of the beginning perspectives has to be right there at the very beginning to remind us of who we are to each other. And it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And I want to remind you of this truth. This has to be present on the heart of all of God's people. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now I want you to recognize that right here, There's only one race. That God did not create them separately into divisions of what color their skin was. But he said, each and every person, that that all of the humans that I have created, they are in my image. They bear my image and they have value because of that. They have worth because of that. They should be treated with dignity because of that. They are created in the image of God. And for the believer in the world today, I want to just start there to remind us that we are from one blood, we are from one family, and when any part of our family suffers, our heart should respond with compassion. Our hands should respond with action and our mouths should respond with words and assistance. And to get to the very first truth of the day that I want you guys to walk away from here with, is this number one, we are all created in the image of God. That this has to be a starting point for the way that we see the world. And it's funny because scientists and theologians don't always see eye to eye on issues of the world and its history and who people are, but they actually both agree on this one thing, that our culture largely misuses the word race when it describes people. Theologians say there is only one race, the human race, that it doesn't matter how much melanin you have in your skin, you belong to the same family, that's the theologian side. And now scientists as well that say when we're studying genetics, we see that the color of your skin really matters a very tiny amount in the other genetic properties of who you are. That there's so many similarities between people of different colors of skin that it doesn't make sense to try to list them in these categories based on how dark their skin is or how light their skin is. Both theologians and scientists are pointing to this and saying that what we call race in today, it's really just a social construct. That there's nothing biological about the color of your skin that dictates who you're going to be morally, culturally, about the things that you're going to like, that that is not a biological preset, but it's something that's culturally happening. And Racism in our world, it is a cultural problem that has to be addressed. 
And while all of this craziness has been happening in our world over the last few weeks, it's actually reminded me of some of the things that happened in Rwanda. Now that might be a strange thing to go to, but if you've been alive for a little while, I'm sure you remember what happened in 1994. You won't remember necessarily how it all happened, but there, uh, there was a huge conflict in the 90s. But it, it has its roots further back than that. Back in 1919, Belgium took control of Rwanda after the First World War. And within Rwanda, there, there was a, a cultural understanding that there was a group called the Hutus that, that were farmers, and, and they raised crops. And then there's a group of people in that cultural, and it was almost like a class, and, and they were called Tutsis, and, and they raised livestock. And the, the definition of, of that is an abundance of livestock. And, and the, these two groups that, that were there, and when the Belgians came in, they actually took these two cultural classes and, inter- and turned them into races. And I want to show you some of, some of the pictures here. They actually measured some of the people from the same country, measured the size of their head, measured the size of their nose, looked at the shape of their eyes, and then from that made them a passport that declared them as either being the race of Hutu or being the race of Tutsi. And they instilled this belief that they were these two completely separate races and people groups within their country. And as time went in, 19, in the 1960s, they got their freedom, but they continued in this belief that they were different than their own countrymen. And I want to show you the next picture that puts two of them aside where they try to establish there's differences between us. And as the Hutus gained control of their country in 1969, tensions continued to escalate and escalate into the 90s until we had one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. But I want you to look and see there's not much difference between these people. Their understanding of differences that led to hatred, which led to murder and led to genocide, uh, from the very beginning, the, the Tutsis had greater access to good jobs and greater education. Uh, all of this discrimination that happened, it was rooted in social constructs that are evil and shouldn't exist. And you can see there's not much difference between these two men, but I want you to see this next picture, that there's also not much difference between these two people either. That there's part of our culture that still believes that these people should not see each other as the same, but these young two boys that are the best of friends, they're a great example that we're not separate races, we are one race, we are the human race. And from scripture, that is what we are taught. Both of these beautiful young men are created in the image of God, worthy of respect, worthy of feeling safe, worthy of standing up for. There's something about the sinful nature of man that will find a way to create separations and barriers and create hate between someone else who bears the image of God and ourselves. And this is something that we have to stand up against. We cannot allow hate to live inside of our churches or our communities or our households. And we have to teach our children that every person on earth, no matter their color, no matter their age, no matter what culture they come from, they are created in the image of God and worthy of protection and worthy of love. And I want to show you what 1 John chapter 4 speaks to this very powerfully. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, 
how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. I want you to see this clearly. You've got to love both because there's part of us that when we hear about racism, we say to ourselves, well, I haven't hurt anyone. I haven't attacked anyone. Like, I I haven't done anything for them either, but I haven't hurt them. And, and, And we feel justified in that. But I want to tell you the call from God himself, of how we treat our neighbor, no matter what culture they're from, from, no matter how different their life is from us, the call from scripture is to love them. And love means action. Love means compassion. Love means empathy. Love means making a difference in our world. I love how the passage says, if you say you love God whom you can't see, but you hate your brother who you do see, you're a liar. There's this truth that we can't see God, but his image is present on people who are in front of us and all around us. And if we treat the image of God that is right in front of us with contempt or disdain, or or we, we just don't care about the suffering that they're going through, then that says something about how we see God himself. It says something about how we revere him, about how we respect him or fear him. It tells us something about that. And we aren't just called to, to not harm them. We're called to love them. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great place for you to go study this week if you wonder what it means to love someone else. If you wonder what the definition of love is, spend some time in 1 Corinthians 13 and this is what we're supposed to be doing for our neighbors. The second thing that I want you to see is that we are responsible for breaking down division. This is a call of what we're supposed to do. If you are a police officer in today's community, one of the things that I'd say God calls you to do is help break down division. And in the midst of all of the craziness that's happening in our culture today, there are some men and women who are doing an excellent job of this. And I want to show you some of the pictures. First, we see a picture where a police chief has joined and he's walking with them. Now, I, just, I want to just show you, like, the people in these pictures, they, they feel heard, and they feel seen, and they feel respected. Go, go on to the next picture of this embrace. And, and I'm just, I'm so caught in the smile right here. Where, where people who came out to protest, they're seeing compassion and love, And there are so many police officers who are doing a great job. And we need absolutely more of this next picture where we see a police officer and a protester praying together. This is what we need. And this is what you're called to. And I want want to affirm you that if this has been you, we are applauding you. We are loving what you're doing. And there are police officers within our congregation that I'm so proud of you because the way that you have impacted our city, the way that you've put yourself out there and made yourself available for conversations, the way that you have endured difficult times and continued to walk in integrity, we're proud of our law enforcement officers who are doing the right thing and making a difference all around the country. At the same time, I'm also so thankful for so many people of color in our congregation who've made themselves accessible to me to help me understand, to talk to me about your experiences and what you've gone through. And I'm so thankful for for the way that you've stepped up and helped make a difference. And this is the calling that is on the church, that when we see division, we have to move towards it and break it down. That other people have made mistakes 
And it's not that, that we ha- can change other people, but we are in control of our own actions. And this is the calling that I want to put on you. That where you see division, you have a calling from God to help break that division down. And I want you to see this from scripture. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, we, we see this interaction that happens with Peter and the Apostle Paul. And we'll keep this up here on the screen for just a second, but I want to give a little background first. First of all, right before this section in Scripture, we see that the Apostle Paul, who, who was one of the newer apostles, he submitted himself to the, the apostles that were already in leadership. He went and he talked to them and said, hey, this is the message I've been preaching. I want to make sure I'm doing things right. Is this right? And he got the stamp of approval from the other apostles. And, and he, he was like the lower guy on the totem pole. Peter, Peter was the one who, he was the leader in the church. Jesus said, Peter, you're the, you're the rock and I'm going to build the church upon this rock. Peter was the lead guy. But, but the Apostle Paul saw something happen in Peter's life that made him have this conflict with Peter. And he writes about it in the book of Galatians. And he says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised, but afterward when some friends of James came, these were Hebrew friends, a different culture, a different ethnicity, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their, stay right here for a second, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas is like the most encouraging person that you find in scripture. His name literally means son of encouragement. And throughout different places that we see him pop up in the New Testament, he was always encouraging. He was standing behind other people. When the Apostle Paul got mad at John Mark, Barnabas stood with him. He was someone who stood with other people. And Peter, being such a high up leader, showing this hypocrisy, as the Apostle Paul calls it, his hypocrisy even led the other people who were really good at heart astray. And going to verse 14. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, did you catch that? When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? The Apostle Paul was angry and he was upset. He saw in Peter hypocrisy that was happening where he was treating Gentiles who were approved by God, people that he loved and sat with and ate with just a week ago and he's treating them as outcasts now that Hebrew people have showed up. And there there was that connection of saying, The gospel message, like he's going against the gospel message. Well, how is that? I mean, Peter, he didn't beat them with rods. He didn't call them mean names. He he didn't attack them or hurt them physically, but he did remove himself from their life. He wouldn't eat with them anymore. And that was enough for the apostle Paul to look at that and say, you are departing from the gospel message when you treat people from a different culture like this. I mean, this is like, it's not a big deal. I'm just sitting with my people. I'm just sitting with my buddies at the table. I just don't want to sit with them anymore. It was a big enough deal where the Apostle Paul got up in front of everybody and got in Peter's face about it. and said, this is not how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. This is not how the church works. And Peter corrected himself. 
I mean, that's one of the lovely things about Peter. Peter stuck his foot in his mouth a million times, but always took it out and started walking in the right way. And I want you to see clearly that it's not enough to just not hurt, but we actually have to include, invite in, be part of, be part of a family together. And so we have to take steps, we have to take actions to tear down divisions. Where, where things are separate, we have to help them join back together. And you're not going to be able to fix the whole world all in one week, but when God gives you opportunities to help bring people together, you have to grab a hold of them. Our police officers keep making a difference. Uh, our people of color who have had to deal with insensitivity, who have had to deal with criticism, continue to help educate and encourage people different than you so that they can understand and be part of the solution. And I understand that it gets tiresome, that it is exhausting emotionally. And I want to show you Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 as just a word of encouragement as we do this. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. Let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we won't give up, if we don't give up. We have to continue on. And I understand that there's a feeling and a sense of it's not making enough of a difference, but you can make a difference in one person's life. And as we see a church rise up, we can see it change a community. We have to continue to break down division. And the third encouragement that I want to bring to you today is that we should defend those who don't have a voice. We should defend those who don't have a voice. Throughout history, there's always been a group of people that the general public just does not trust, does not listen to, does not pay attention to their suffering or their experience. And we see this happen in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 4, where the Pharisees and the, the rulers, they brought a woman who was caught in adultery and threw her before Jesus. I'm going to read you part of the passage of what they said to him. They said, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, first of all, procedurally, this was wrong. Uh, adultery tends to take two people to happen and both are supposed to be held accountable. And so first of all, there's a huge injustice of saying, where's the man in this circumstance? Well, he was apparently let off the hook, but they were going to bring justice down upon her, even if they bent the rules a little bit. But beyond that, just so you know the culture of the time, in that day and age, according to the Talmud that gave the rabbis and the rulers of the temple their procedural operating of how to handle trials and injustices, a woman's testimony was not to be accepted. And so as she's brought forth by herself to be condemned potentially to death, what she has to say about the situation, it doesn't matter and it's not even heard. The Talmud explicitly would say that the testimony of a woman is not to be heard. And so Jesus beginning to just even stand in any sort of defense of her begins to set an example for us of how to treat those who don't have a voice. In the context of the passage, it appears that she was caught in the act and that she probably was guilty, which just teaches us something further about the grace to show people. Because she was guilty, but Jesus' response to the crowd and correcting the crowd was simple. And, and I believe that you probably already know what he said. He said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus standing up for the guilty. 
Jesus asking those who are accusing the guilty to kind of put themselves in her shoes for a moment and ask, are you innocent of mistakes that would find you in a situation like this? And the crowd dispersed. And then Jesus' words didn't just stop of correcting the crowd. He spoke to her, you know, woman, does no one condemn you? No one, Lord. Then go and sin no more. And he had words of correction for her as well. And I want to tell you that this kind of grace, this kind of love, it's not something that's going to come from the culture, but it is something that should be coming from the church. That when we see people who aren't given a voice to defend themselves, when we see people who are being unjustly moved through a system, we should speak up. And that's not to say that everyone in the system is the problem, but when we do see a problem, we should speak towards it. We should speak grace. And what we see in Jesus' interaction with this woman who was caught in adultery, and what we see throughout so many interactions of Jesus speaking to people, it's not me up here saying Jesus is on a specific side of this, and I see far too often in our culture that people want to try to make the case that Jesus is on their political side, that Jesus would be a Republican or Jesus would be a Democrat, but we try to skew his words to say, look and see how Jesus is on my side, and I want to impress upon you, church, that you need to understand it's not about proving that Jesus is on our side, but it's about us figuring out that we need to be on Jesus's side of the issues, that it's not justifying our behavior and our belief based on Jesus's teachings, but looking at Jesus's teachings and learning how do I need to modify my behavior? How do I need to modify the way that I treat people? How do do I need to help best encourage my neighbor? I need to get myself on Jesus' side of the way to live. I need to get myself onto Jesus' mission because this is what I know and this is what I've experienced, that when I get my life right before God, it changes the way that I treat other people. When I get my life right before God, it makes me more compassionate, more understanding, more quick to listen and slower to speak and slower to anger. When I get myself right with God, I know that my life changes. And this is what I want for anyone who's listening today. It's not that I think that you need to move to one side of a political spectrum. What I think you really need is you need to get a close relationship with your heavenly father where you give him authority to change the way you see the world. And then no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, as a believer in Christ, grace and truth has to be guiding your heart and your life. Rather than figuring out which side we should be on politically, let's figure out what is God speaking to the church today about how to live. Because bringing us back to the passage that we started at, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 through 21, if anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. I think that there are people listening today that they generally love people, but God has not been a part of the equation of your life. 
and, and you care deeply about people, but you haven't let God be part of it. And I believe it's skewing the way that you see the world. And I believe that there's a part of your heart that is crying out to get things right with God. And I believe there's people listening today that generally they have a passion for scripture and they have a passion for worshiping God, but they have not allowed that relationship with God to flow into the way that they treat people. And whichever side you find yourself in that, if you're in that place today, I want to invite you. I want to tell you that God invites you to get it right, to have both pieces together. That we, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, scripture says you will be saved. What that means is saved from sin, saved from a life without purpose, saved, changed, transformed into a new creation. And it starts with a confession and a belief. But I believe any of us who've made that confession would freely say that all people are created in the image of God. That it is our job to tear down division and that we should defend those who don't have a voice. That these are things that God calls us to do. These are things that Jesus taught us through his example. And these are things that our culture and our city needs to see us doing so badly today. So church, I wanna share this one last thought with you as we go for today, for those who are in Christ, for those who are trying to make a difference, for those who are struggling with the engagement of interacting with other people, this call, this scriptural command from Philippians chapter two. Let's put it up on the screen. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Go back to the verse 14 for me. Do everything without complaining and arguing. This is tough today. It's difficult. But this is the thing. In order to love people, you don't have to complain. You don't have to argue. I think that if we invest more of our heart and more of our life into loving other people, that the complaining and the arguing that we've been exhausting ourselves with will fall to the wayside. We want to take the opportunities that God gives us to make a difference in someone else's life. We want to invest ourselves in those moments and not the complaining and arguing that's happening on social media and isn't doing an ounce of good for anyone else. And so find your ways, make a difference, make God's love known here on earth. Gulfside, thank you for being a place that reaches out and tears down division.